Uh, Turn in your Bible with me, please, to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. It's the book, uh, if you get into the section of the prophets, uh, Lamentations immediately follows the book of Jeremiah. Thank you, sir. Reading Job this week, uh, well, reading, reading Job in general, but particularly this week, has reminded me of Lamentations. And just real quick, because we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but Lamentations, as you know, was written by Jeremiah. It, it's a book which is essentially uh, a funeral message. Uh, the book is a funeral message. Uh, you say, well, who died? Well, it wasn't a person that died. The, the book of Lamentations is a funeral dirge for the city of Jerusalem because Jerusalem has been captured uh, by the Babylonians uh, as part of God's discipline and judgment in the lives of the Israelites. And uh, Jeremiah, as we we parachute into Lamentations, finds himself sitting up on a hill uh, outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, and he's looking down from the mountain, from the hills, uh, to see his beloved city burning and in destruction. And... um, He reflects on those things in chapter 3, verse 1. I am a man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his head repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He, talking to God, has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. And he made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughingstock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. Jeremiah ministered for 40 years without one convert. He ministered faithfully to the nation of Israel for his God, and not one person was turned away from their sin because of his ministry. And here we see him overflowing with sorrow. He he personalizes what has gone on in his ministry. And can you hear can you hear the echo of Job in his words? God is against me. God is afflicting me. God doesn't listen to my prayer. God has bent his bow and he's aiming at me as the target. We see there in verse 14, even the the people of Israel apparently would come up with these songs mocking the prophets. So here goes Jeremiah down the streets of Jerusalem, and he would hear on the sidewalks on either side these, these mocking songs mocking the prophets of God. 
He says in verse 17, My soul has been rejected from peace, and I have forgotten happiness. You ever been that discouraged where you can't remember what it's like to be happy? And so he says, verse 18, My strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. That's where Job is right now. He's come to the end. He sees in every way that God is against him, that God has become his enemy. He's discouraged. He's despairing. He's lost hope. He's forgotten happiness. He has no strength. And what little, you know, you can almost see his, his fingers clinging to hope in God, but he's starting to slide Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. It's like something clicks inside the psalmist here. Something pops into his mind and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm remembering, something is, is remembering inside my heart. Verse 21, this I recall to mind Therefore, I have hope. It's like the lights are fading down. It's almost black. And all of a sudden, he discovers the light switch. And he flips on the switch, and the lights come on. What happened? What, what turned on the light? What changed the direction of his soul? Look at verse 22. What did he remember? That the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. There's no off switch to God's kindness. There's no stopping of the disposition He has toward His own of grace and mercy. His compassions, He he continues, His compassions never fail. Verse 23, they are new every morning. Every morning. Whether you're having a party or whether your city is burning whether there's a great revival or whether your people are being carried off into captivity. He says God's faithfulness is consistent. It is new. It is there. And one of the reasons I want to draw your attention to this, the Psalms do this, Job does this, we see this in Jeremiah. What do you do when the theology you know and your circumstances collide? What do you do when what you know to be true about God seems to contradict what just happened in your life? You know what I mean? Do you hear him wrestling here? Do you hear him? I know you to be faithful. I know you to be righteous. I know you're compassionate. But I don't feel like it today. I don't see that in what's just happened. In fact, I see the opposite. I see you trying to punish me. I see you firing arrows at me. I see you hating your people, not loving your people. And he wrestles with that. Look at verse 24. The Lord is my portion. What does that mean? Okay, count your blessings. Sir? Okay. Okay. The Lord was to be their inheritance. Okay. Someone else back there? 
He is better than it all. Uh, you're right, Gary. The, 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 the allusion that Gary gave there is, is true. It, it echoes back to the Levites who had no land inheritance because their inheritance was to be the Lord. And I think when... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Psalm 16. Uh-huh. Yeah. This is helpful because what happens in Jeremiah's life in less than a chapter is what's going to happen ultimately in Job's life. But I, I want to show you the, the miniature version here. Okay. Jeremiah got to a place when his theology and his experience collided in contradiction where he ran back to the only place of safety, the only place that would bring clarity, the only place that would bring him back to a place of hope. And that was a place where he was affirming of the character of God. I don't care what happens today, but I know God is faithful. I know His loving kindness never cease. I know His compassions never fail. And the end of that chain is where he says, God's my portion. I haven't lost God. And as long as I have him, I have everything. Uh, Regine mentioned Psalm 16. That psalm ends with uh, what? Um, uh, I remember the second part. What's the first part? Um, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is some joy, right? Is that what it says? In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. What is he saying? If I have God, I have everything. If I have God, everything else is grace. Remember Job? Naked I came uh, into the world, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord take it away, take, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What's he saying? It's all grace. And I haven't lost my Savior. Verse 25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. Now watch, watch this, 26. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Can you put that together? He just went from kindergarten to first grade in his understanding. He got where he needed to go. He took a step in the right direction, and then he takes a huge step. He graduates in that next verse. What did he just say? It is, say it, good to wait. How many love waiting? (laughs) I hate waiting. If I'm honest with you, I hate waiting. I don't care what it is. You know, I get free two-day shipping at Amazon. That's not fast enough. You know what I mean? It is good to wait on God. It is good to wait on God. For his salvation. Because, because, waiting does something in me that nothing else will do. Right? 
when I am waiting on God, God is doing something in me that He He doesn't do in other contexts. He is refining me. He is pushing away all the other things that I'm hanging on to. He is pushing away all the things that I'm looking to to be my functional saviors. And He is causing me to cling to Him alone, to wait on His timing. I was talking um, yesterday about Psalm 43. And he gets to the end of Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down? Hope in God, for I will again praise Him. But it's not the normal word for hope. It's the word wait. And wait means three things. You know what it means? It means I trust in the character of God. I submit to what He's doing in my life. And I am patient with His timing. And that's, that's what God is doing in these moments here. I think Jeremiah helps us to get a preview of what's happening in Job. And it helps us to keep the big picture in mind. Um, okay, so as we read Job, perhaps Jeremiah can become uh, another one of our friends to help us. Um, he's called the weeping prophet, right, Jeremiah? Uh, so he and Job... Uh, no doubt, uh, are, are soulmates in, in that regard. Well, let's turn back to the book of Job now, and let's continue our, uh, our exposition. Um, I did some math, and uh, I think I'm going to be 40 years old before we end Job at the rate I'm going here. Uh, that was kind of a humbling thought, but uh, anyway. It's good for you to wait. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, being optimistic. Yeah, I said uh, I, I walked in yesterday to this men's breakfast, and I said, uh, you know, there, there's the, the two biggest problems a congregation can have. Uh, the first is the preacher forgot his watch, and the second is the time that he said he had was was more than the time that he was given. So uh, anyway, that's uh, that's not good, but. Okay, well, we are in a section where Eliphaz has spoken. Uh, the first friend has come in and has um, counseled Job, has attempted to encourage him, and as we found out, he didn't do such a good job. And now we're in chapter 6 where Job is responding to his friend. And just by way of review, let's look at what we talked about last time as we think about um, Job's response. Okay, chapter 6, verse 1. Then Job answered, Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my iniquity, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. He says, If you take what's happened to me externally and you combine it with the thunderstorm that's going on in my heart internally, if we could take that and put it in this giant scale, it would weigh more than the sand of all the seashores in the world. So we see Job, first of all, reflecting on the vastness of his sorrow. Uh, again, we, we've, we've got so much to, to, to keep in perspective 
the situation that he's in. We can get lost in the dialogue and forget that this is a man who has just lost all his kids, has lost all his livelihood, all his retirement, all his stuff, and now he has these diseases going on in his body where he is unrecognizable, he's in constant pain, his skin is black, he has has sores all over his body, there are worms infesting those sores, there are no doubt infections taking root in his body, he is in constant pain. And that's his condition as we, as we look at chapter 6. He reflects on his sorrow. But, but notice also the end of, of verse 3, he says, Therefore my words have been rash. We see even in the midst of great sorrow, he catches himself. You can see in here a, a developed godly conscience. Can you notice that? As he reflects on that first speech in chapter 3 that he gave where he just bursts forth and curses the day that he was born, he reflects a little bit and says, You know what? I was a bit hasty in my words. I was rash in my words. He he acknowledges that. He acknowledges that his words have been rash, that he may have jumped to conclusions. Verse 4, we see the arrows of the Almighty are within me. What does that sound like? Sounds like Jeremiah, doesn't it? Okay, God is against me. God, you ever felt like that? Wait, we want to show hands. You ever felt like... God's got his um, his tanks and his guns and his bombs and his missiles up in heaven, and he's aiming them at you. You ever felt like that? I had someone this last week. Uh, you know, there are some things going on in, in this person's life, and, and he called me up and he said, "You know, all this stuff is happening. Is God disciplining me?" What would you tell him? I mean, I don't think you need to know the specifics necessarily to to answer the question theologically. What would you say if somebody, all these bad things are happening, and they said, God is disciplining me? What would you think? What would you say? You've got to speak louder. I'm going deaf in my old age here. Okay. Someone else? Okay, he might be feeling guilty for his sins. Okay. Someone else? What does he mean by that? Okay. 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 What do you think God is doing? Let me ask you a question. This is something, in fact, Terry, Terry's sermon from, I think, two weeks ago, um, I can't remember what you said, but it, but it popped into my mind as, as you were preaching. Uh, and, and I've been kind of wrestling with this in Job. A lot of Christians get sidetracked by trying to discover the source of their suffering. You know, oh, Satan's out to get me. Satan's doing this. Satan's doing that. God's punishing me. God's disciplining me. God, God's doing that. And I think uh, part of what we we're supposed to get from Ephesians 6, based on your exposition, and, uh, and you can tell me if I misunderstood you, but 
um, and, and part of what I'm getting from Job is our job is not to try to figure out the source of the suffering. We can get lost in that forest. We see in Job 1 and 2, there are three levels of suffering, right? Satan's doing it, the Chaldeans are doing it, and God's doing it. Well, which one is right? The answer is yes, right? All of them. And I think part of what we want to avoid is is not getting distracted with, is this God disciplining me, or is this Satan, or is this just I'm living in a fallen world, or is this my own sin? And instead, put our focus where? On the person of Christ. And then how's that going to get played out? How I'm responding. How I respond, that's right. And I think sometimes we waste all our time trying to figure out, is this Satan, is this God, is this sinful world? And it should be trust Him, turn to Him, and then respond in the way that He would call us to in His Word. Because ultimately, ultimately two things are true. It doesn't matter what the source is, ultimately. And number two, I'm not sure the Bible teaches that we can ever ultimately know who the source is. Right? Uh, we're never we're never really going to know if it's Satan or not. D- does Job ever figure out that Satan was a big part of this? No. As far as we know, he dies thinking, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that was, that was helpful uh, there. Amen. That's it. That's it. Gary? I think sometimes, you know, back when we started, Joe, we were talking about how God created us to be a worshiper. Mm-hmm. And our focus and our attention and our heart is to be focused towards Him in enjoyment and bliss and in, in comfort and in yeah. satisfaction. Hmm. Did you hear what he said? The litmus test of being a Christian is whether or not our enjoyment of God changes, does not change in the midst of varying circumstances. That's good. And I think part of what these books are teaching us is that sometimes it takes removing all those other enjoyments to get there. Okay, very good. Well, let's let's continue. You guys want to teach today? You guys are doing a great job. You just want to come up here and I'll sit down? Okay, number three. He agrees with Eliphaz that God is punishing him. That's the verse about the arrows. Here's where we are today. Look at verse 8. He says, Oh, 
that my request might come to pass, that God would grant me my longing. What's his request? What's his longing? Look at verse 9. Would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. What's he saying? He wants God to kill him. God, just end this. You know, it's, it's one thing to be so discouraged without God that you think of taking your own life. It's quite another thing to know the God of the universe, to know Him as your Lord and Savior, and to suffer so greatly that you're longing, right? Your desire, your request of Him is, God, just take me home. Just kill me. I don't think suicide was ever an option for Job. I've studied the book looking for it a number of times, and I don't ever see him contemplating taking his own life. But he does ask God to do it a few times. And I would just say again, I don't, I don't know that there's anything unchristian about being this discouraged. This is a godly man, right? This is the greatest of the men of the East in this position. And he's really, really struggling. He's at the bottom of the barrel. Look at verse 10. But, but it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is he saying? He's saying his encouragement is still that he has not denied the words of God. He has not sinned. He has not um, uh, spoken against God. So this is interesting. You, you see this sort of back and forth. And, and again, I appreciate the honesty of this book, don't you? Real life is not, I figure out the answer to my problem and then I'm okay. Real life is a problem comes and I take a step in the right direction and then I take a step in the wrong direction. I have days where I'm thinking straight and then the next second I'm thinking poorly. I'm thinking God's thoughts after him, then I'm thinking sinful thoughts. I, and that's, that's real. Is that where you guys live? That's where we live. That's the struggle here. We see a real man wrestling. God, I want you to kill me, but I rejoice in my pain. We go, What? I often wonder what a, a psychologist would do with this book. Um, in fact, I, I, I think I, I have a thing rolling around in my head for a number of weeks called um, If Job Lived in the 21st Century, What Would Contemporary Christian Therapy Do With Him? What's that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get there, guys. We'll get there. Um, but we see even at the bottom of his, his despair, his confidence is that he hasn't denied his creator. 
Now watch him flip-flop again. Look at verse 11. What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should endure? Is my strength the strength of stones? Is my flesh bronze? What's he saying? He's saying, I don't have the strength to do this. And did you catch it? What is my end that I should endure? What is he beginning to contemplate in that verse? This is very important that you see this. He's contemplating if it will ever end, but he takes a step further. What's that? Okay. He's saying, what's the point of enduring this? What's the point in continuing to try to trust God and do what's right? What's the point? I don't see... (laughs) I don't see the value of what's going on. I don't see God's hand in what's going on. I don't see God's grace at work in what's going on. And he's getting to the place where he's saying, is trying to honor God in the midst of the day-to-day worth it? Is it worth it to keep trying to honor God? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 You know, it's interesting. The first part of what you said, he's going to say almost verbatim in the next chapter. So that's that's an interesting connection there. Very good. Look at verse 4, Psalm 39. Now, now watch him change here. Look at verse 14. Uh, let's see. Yeah, okay. Verse 14. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. What's he saying there? I'm sorry, we can't. I, I can't go any faster because I keep seeing good stuff here. We need to stop and talk about. What's he saying in verse 14? Okay. That could be, and, and uh, maybe your translation takes it a little bit different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't do it intentionally, but let's go back to verse 13. Uh, he says, Is my strength the strength of stones? Is my flesh bronze? Is it that my help is not within me and that deliverance is driven from me? What do you think about that? Okay. Very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you could take that to mean I don't have it in me to fix this. 
But I don't, I don't know that he's connected that to needing God yet. Do you, do you, do you read it like that? Yeah. Yeah, that's, no, that's true. That's true. Yes. No, I agree. That's a good connection. I hadn't seen that. So he's seeing that it's not within him. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay. Okay. That's very good. Um, the first half of 14, here's what I think he's saying. Guys, I know you want to help me, but you're not helping. He says, for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, right? Uh, kindness is, is, is hesed, right? It, it's that faithful, loyal kindness and love. And here's what he's saying. What Eliphaz says, he's not taking as encouragement. He's not taking it as help. He's seeing it as a breach of the loyalty of their friendship. Do you see that? In fact, he's so discouraged by what he's just heard, he says... And it's a mild rebuke is what 14 is. It's a mild rebuke for the despairing man. There should be kindness, loyal, faithful love from his friend lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. He's saying, friend, if you keep talking like this, you might tempt me to turn away from the fear of my God. Do you, see, do you read it like that? Lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. That's, that's Shaddai. Well, tell me what you think. He shares with Eliphaz that the words of Eliphaz are tempting him to forsake trust in the Lord because of his words. Um, flip over to uh, Proverbs 12 just for a, a moment. Because I think this is a, this is a pull the car over verse. Look at Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. <laughs> think about this in the context of trying to minister to somebody who's suffering, okay? I'm just going to put that context in play here. There is one, 12.18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. We've talked about rash speech. We've talked about hasty words. And what Solomon is saying in Proverbs 12 is that sometimes we can speak too quickly and even though our intentions might be good, it feels like from the other side you are stabbing them with a sword. Right? You see that? When, when we are trying to be an instrument of grace in the life of the person who's hurting, we end up becoming Satan's instrument. It's interesting. One of the commentators I was reading talked about just this perspective of 
Here come these friends. These are loyal friends, good friends, godly friends. They come in. They want to be God's instrument of help, and they end up taking sides unintentionally with what Satan is doing in this man's life. Look at uh, Proverbs twelve eighteen again. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This is the verse, we've, we've said it before, it's worth repeating. This is one of those warning verses in this chapter. Because even though our intention might be good to help somebody who's suffering, we can end up hurting them by being hasty in our words. Read it. Yeah, you can take it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the problems, uh, as I mentioned with Job, is that um, it's old, <laughs> it's poetry, and it's narrative. How's that go, David? Very, very hard to translate, right? Um, and so you can take it like that. And, and taken like that, it would be, uh, it would really be a warning for the person talking, right? Which would be true as well. Yes, Steve. One of the things that always strikes me about Job is reading the past of his friends is when you read them in isolation, there's actually nothing wrong with anything they say, although right. all their statements are correct. And yeah. And you find the same thing in Psalms, etc. But when you're trying to help somebody in difficult times, just throwing a string of homilies at them is... Yeah, that's good. It's good theology wrongly applied. Yeah, yeah. Everything was fine until they started talking. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. In fact, it makes me think of Proverbs eighteen thirteen. He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. So maybe they didn't sit with him long enough. You know. <laughs> yes, we do. Well, we'll couple, yeah, couple that with, with the source of suffering. I, I think what this book is saying is it's shifting our focus from what's the source and solving the problem to let's encourage our friend by pointing him to his God and seeing God in the midst of that, not, not, to, not to micromanage. Um, I think about this too. We do this a lot in family, especially family that doesn't live nearby. You know, you get the phone call and, um, you know, dad's sick. Uh, mom's in the hospital. Um, you know, aunt so-and-so is this, right? And, and, and we're removed. And now we're called to get involved, right? And we should get involved. That's good. How important is it to assess the context of that before we know what to do?
Have you been there? I've taken my foot and put it in my mouth more times than I'd like to admit because I did not, because I was trying to give an answer before I heard. I was trying to minister out of ignorance instead of really assessing the, the proper context there. All right, let's, let's wrap this up here. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. Back to Job uh, 6. Lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. Um, Job is telling his friends, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but it's not helping. It's tempting me to forsake the fear of my God. Now, now look at 15. This goes back to that little word he uses there, kindness, hesed, faithful, loyal, love. Look at 15. My brothers have acted deceitfully. That's, that's a nice way where Job is saying, you guys are deceiving me. And we say, what? How are, how are they deceiving him? Look at, look at what he says. He says they're like the wadi, like that little river between where the valleys come together. And depending upon the season, what happens? Sometimes that's a raging river, and then what happens in, in the dry season? It dries up, right? He says, you guys are like that wadi, like that river, like the torrents of the wadis which vanish. They are turbid because of ice, and then the snow melts, and then they become waterless, and they're silent. When it's hot, they vanish from their place, and the paths of their course wind up. They go up into nothing, and they perish. He's saying, you guys are like this river that's here today and gone tomorrow. You say, well, how does that have to do with the friends? Think about it through the lens of their loyalty. They come offering help. They come saying, I want to help. I want to encourage. And then when it comes right down to it, they end up hurting him. And they deceive him in that way. He says they're like the caravans of Tamah. Look, the travelers of Sheba hoped for them. Those were, uh, Tamah was in the northwestern part of Arabia. Sheba was in the southwestern part of Arabia. And in between them was the desert, the deadly desert that was very, very uh, dangerous to cross. He says, you were like travelers going across that deadly desert when they were disappointed, for they had trusted. They came there and were confounded. Um, you know, in the picture here is they would be crossing the desert. They were relying on a source of water that would sustain them. And when they got to that source of water, they found out the information they received was bad. There was no water, and they perished in the desert. Indeed, you have now become such. You see a terror and are afraid. Have I said, give me something? Offer me a bribe for your wealth or deliver me from the hand of the adversary or redeem me from tyrants? Verse 24, Job says, teach me and I will be silent. Show me how I have erred. How painful are honest words, but what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? You would even cast lots for the orphans and barter over your friend. And then verse 28. This is one of the most sad verses in the whole section. He looks at his friends and says, Please look at me. Look me in the eyes and tell me, Am I lying to your face? Because they're saying, Job, there's something in your life. There's something sinful that you need to repent of. There's something you're doing. That's why God's doing this. And Job looks at him and says, Look at me. I'm your friend. Look me in the eyes. Do you think I'm lying to you? 
He declares his friends to be deceitful since he came to help, but has only caused harm. And he asks Eliphaz to show him where he sinned. He's willing to listen, right? I'm willing to listen. But he concludes that he's not lying. He says, I'm not lying. Look me in the eyes. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's a greater charge between friends than accusing the other of lying. Think about that. Think, think of one of your best friends. Think of your spouse. Think of someone who's close to you and accusing them of lying. That's where we've gotten. Where Job's saying, you guys are accusing me of lying? So though they came to be instruments of God, just like Job's wife, they have become to be instruments of what Satan is trying to do. And what's Satan trying to do? He's trying to bring Job to a place where he curses his God. And 14 tells us that he's making progress through Eliphaz lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. We'll put a comma in your notes, and we'll pick up the second part of Job's speech next time. Let's pray together.